0: this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katherine Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today's episode is brought to you by RSM U.S., a leading accounting, tax, and advisory firm dedicated to the middle market. To discuss the current state of middle market M&A, I'm joined by Anthony DiCandido, a partner in RSM's financial services practice, and Michael Finelli, a transaction advisory services partner with RSM. This episode features the audio from a video interview we taped for ACG's Growth TV. The video included a discussion about how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted M&A activity in the middle market, the industries where Anthony and Michael expect to see increased activity, and what they're seeing in terms of valuations. Those topics are all covered here too, but the second half of this podcast episode delves into some other areas, including the alternative sources of data that investors and companies are using what buyers and sellers should be thinking about when analyzing financial performance, and a look at proposals coming out of Washington that would restrict M&A activity. If you've already watched the video, you can skip to the second half of this interview to hear the rest of the conversation. And if you haven't seen it, you can head to acg.org slash growth TV, where you can watch the interview along with all of our other videos. With that, let's get to the episode. Here's my conversation with Anthony DeCandido and Michael Finelli, partners at RSM. Anthony and Michael, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having
0: us. So it's been almost nine weeks since the World <sighs> Health Organization declared the coronavirus to be a pandemic, and since then, the public health crisis has had a dramatic impact on deals in the middle market. Michael, what are you seeing in terms of M and A activity right now?
1: Yeah, you know it's been it's been tough um, right off the bat. You could tell private equity firms were completely focused on their existing portfolio companies, and as they should have been, um, ensuring appropriate cash flow liquidity requirements. Uh, appropriate workforce, uh, remote workforce, business continuity planning. Some 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 companies, this was very easy uh, to go from you know, going into the office every day to then having a 100% remote workforce. Some, some it was very difficult, and nothing was put in place beforehand. So that that was a big uh, a big to do within the current portfolio companies of private equity firms, and then obviously just the the general cash flow and liquidity analysis that they had to do as well. So they they were very very focused on their existing portfolio companies and still are now there are deals happening it's just at a much lower volume we we had some deals that were in progress prior to the coronavirus pandemic and and even after everything was shut down shelter in place we did have some deals close over the past one Mm -hmm. to two months which was fantastic we had not had many uh, at least too many deals start and close within within the pandemic timeframe. So it'll be interesting to see once that starts to happen a little bit more. And then also with, with with sell side due diligence projects, so helping a company prepare for sale, those transactions or those processes are happening, which should show companies coming to market in the in the fall timeframe, end of summer, early fall, which would be really good to see some uptick in, in activity. The, the, the big thing right now is there, there is leverage to be had which is good uh lenders are banks are lending not at the same levels that they were previously and it's a little bit more difficult to obtain that leverage but it is happening so it's not like the 2008-2009 financial crisis when you literally could not get a dime of of leverage for a transaction you can get leverage uh, for certain businesses for certain transactions not all so that's good so that's not totally dried up. And the fact that that's happening as well as we are seeing some sell side processes start with the hopes again of, of commencing uh, a process in the summertime or the fall that, that shows hopefully that the MA market will have a little bit of an uptake over the next few months. Cause over the overall, the past two months, it's been, it's fallen off a cliff.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, Anthony curious to to see some data points from your
2: perspective on what you've seen from a data perspective on M&A deals? Yeah, I think that's right, Mike. I mean, I think it's important for the audience to understand the context of how Mike sees things versus me. He has a you know transaction advisory partner me as more of an analyst doing research work on behalf of our firm. So, you know, the information that we've pulled um, does prove that there was a significant slowdown in M&A activity uh, from the data points we observed from February and March of 20 compared to April of 20. Uh, clearly it's had to do with companies working through business challenges resulting from the coronavirus. in the period from April 1 through the first few days of, of May of 20, the value of announced deals was somewhere around 207 billion dollars, mm. which is more than 50 percent less than previous periods. So the biggest question that we have is you know how bad of an aftertaste will there actually be on corporate deal making at its current pace, if things were to continue at the same rate, uh, we would close at the end of Q2, it would save only 10,000 years with a total value of north of 600 billion. Yeah, what does this all mean? I think, yeah, as a business community, every industry has essentially accelerated whatever transformation activities and projects that they've had planned, whether they wanted to or didn't want to. Um, you know, on a deal side, we've learned that those in-person meetings that typically are the signal to a deal being executed are even more critical to the private negotiations between buyers and sellers than we had imagined. Um, But I think it's important to understand where a company stands in its life cycle. So if you're an early stage firm, I think it's especially important to develop that level of rapport with buyers or sellers through onsite diligence. If you're more of a mature firm, maybe less so, you know Mike mentioned what his feelings are on a possible recovery and we're following that very closely you know there's there's a possibility for some that argue a v-shaped recovery they'll say some the things like you know we have a healthy backlog that's been emerged which ripens the outlook you know for the third quarter and beyond you know Mike comments on the facts that we're in a very favorable interest rate environment there's a quantitative you know stimulus measures the governments have taken and then let's not forget also you know a lot of the firms that we serve, they have significant available capital and healthy balance sheet, which will allow them to target companies that have good bones that have just otherwise suffered from the recent health crisis. Um, you know, on the analyst side of, of the table with some of the work that we do, we're following two major indicators. One is this CEO confidence index, and the other one is the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, or also known as the VIX. So on the CEO confidence side, whenever there is a decline, it implies a reduced willingness of those CEOs to make deals and also implies greater risk for deal execution. So that index only declined moderately from February through April, say around a a seven reading to 6.6 or roughly 5% decline. And if you put that into context, um, when we evaluate some of the most recent economic slowdowns, i.e. the Great Recession, those readings were consistently in a 2.0 ballpark. So um, that may be a glimmer of hope that some of these chief executives are holding on to the idea that the virus will blow over the next few months.
0: Mm.
2: On the VIX side, the measurements were not as favorable. Um, And again, this is a measurement that um, determines expected price fluctuations in the S&P index over the next 30 days. Um, its recent readings in March and April were 54 and 34 respectively, mm-hmm. which is more than 160% increase from the same time last year. So if we were to see continued volatility in the near term, um, that may also end the deal. So there are two things that we're falling close and will continue to do so over the next so many months.
0: Mm-hmm. And Michael, are there any industries or segments of the market where you're starting to see an, an uptick in M&A activity right now?
1: Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the best industries that we've seen, you know, be able to have a fair amount of activity recently is, is our TMT practice, which is uh, technology, media and telecom. There seems to be tech deals still in the market, which, which is great. So technology has proven that, you know, the business that are selling software or software as a service or financial technology um, enterprise uh, software as well. They're still in the market. Deals are still happening. That's probably the highest volume activity that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. We're also starting to see the, the start, not, not, not full stop, but the start of some restructuring and distressed type assets in the marketplace. Industries like retail, hospitality, travel, and leisure, some restaurants, et cetera, the, the, the businesses that have been hit the hardest, seeing which ones will go into bankruptcy. There's already been a ton announced already. Uh, but most mostly chapter eleven where, they're going to come out of it. Um, so a lot of restructuring, a lot of distressed happenings going on right now in travel, leisure, retail restaurants. but but the darling so far has been has been the technology sector for sure.
0: So, as you said previously, we're seeing a slowdown in the number of deals. But for transactions that are moving forward or closing, what are you seeing in the way of valuations, Anthony?
2: Yeah, so clearly they're down down by a lot. Um, You'll understand this. Many of the clients that we serve, they've just completed their fiscal year-end audits and are now preparing for the first-time valuations amidst COVID here. Um, But what was considered to be fair value at December 31, combing off this great period of stability and prosperity, is likely to be vastly different today and in far greater flux. Um, So in the history of reporting, there there may have never been a more sudden and material market shakeup like the one that we're experiencing. So when we speak to clients, the first thing we remind them is the fact that, you know, their accounting disclosures and their financial statements do read the fact that actual results may vary from estimates. So that should put those clients a little bit more at ease as to just employing a good methodology and exercise on their valuations. But to put in much more concrete terms, um, nearly all of our clients' priority investment industries suffered value losses you know, none less than about 10% and some as much as 19%. Um, two of the most common approaches that we're seeing today are income models and market models. Um, income models, i.e. DCF models, um, they benefit from the fact that they enable management teams to re-forecast possible lost earnings or even changes that they've had materially in their cost structures. And then the second benefit of it is it also allows for the model to to prepare discount rates that would capture the risk of getting that income on time and in full measure. So it's clear, given what's going on in the world, that those rates will only increase given the risk profile of the economy today, because not even the smartest economists or deal professionals have a clear idea as to you know when or how businesses may rebound. On the second example, market models, we suggest to our clients that they increasingly perform calibration. And calibration, for those who are not familiar, it's a technique used when an observed transaction price is used to back into an unobservable input assumption. Mm -hmm. So these assumptions are then updated and rolled forward to subsequent measurement states. And the benefit you have here is you would expect to see some level of directional consistency between the cited comparable market multiples and the funds implied multiples. But regardless of the approach you take, market model or income model, there's some best practices that we always suggest to our clients. The first of which is to avoid diverging from document evaluation policies. Doing so would only raise unnecessary questions from regulators if you were to be examined. And applying consistent methodologies from peer to period not only is necessary, but it also paints a clearer picture of value over time. Um, In scenarios where you have new weightings or you're using new models, we would suggest that the manager be clear as to the rationale of why they're doing that. And then also to support it by way of documentation to avoid any possible scrutiny. And then the last thing we would say is um, always consider qualitative attributes of the industries that you're investing in. That will help to determine the ultimate impact in valuing those underlying positions.
0: And you alluded in your answer just now to uncertainty, and that's been a theme of this conversation. It's a theme of any conversation about the COVID crisis. So, Anthony, as buyers try to make sense of this uncertainty, are you seeing them turn to different sources of information or, or data than they've used in the past? You mentioned earlier sure. confidence index. So, I'm curious what sources of data you're seeing people use.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the recent pandemic clearly puts alternative data to an ultimate test of whether or not we prove its merits. You know, if you think about the speed of which information has been pushed to all of us over the last number of months amidst the, the crisis, it's it's tremendous. Um, but then you could also consider the level of information versus misinformation we may all be consuming out there. Um, so when you consider what's happened just from a political standpoint of, groups leveraging sources of information to make better decisions. Um, if you're not questioning how you may employ better use of alternative data today, I think that would be foolish. Um, consider now when all of this sad news was coming about of, of uh, you know rate of virus and mortality, usually we would always look to the World Health Organization to push data to us for us to make better decisions. But really that's a source of information that um, requires you know some level of, of fielding and then it also requires um, some time to publish stats for us to then consume. So if you think of it that way, maybe it would have been better for us to use predictive data that measures instead atypical illness and we could do it by zip code to try to prepare for what may next be, be may be the next hot spot or you could think about what was going on in China well before what happened in the United States and you could have said, well, Some of the satellite imagery from China was already beginning to show fields of recently dug graves for some of those who have deceased from COVID. And so disturbing as that may have been, um, that could have possibly prompted the leaders here in the States of the grave danger we would be in if we didn't have a proper plan. Mm -hmm. So I I personally think alternative data has a tremendous value and I think it's moving into the forefront of a lot of decision makers um, agenda. I think there's also broad application to private equity. You know, certain industries like hedge funds, they've long used this newer forms of information Mm -hmm. to make better predictive outcomes. But what we sense at RSM is there has not yet been widespread use in the middle market. So if you are considering preparing a new alternative data strategy, think of the following, you know, one, how would you use it? What would you differently than you're already doing? And then most important is which data sources would you trust most and which would you trust least? Um, but absolutely it brings to surface the need for all of us to reevaluate the data that we're using to make better judgments. Um, one of the things that's most topical now is the return to work. And so when you think about information we've traditionally relied upon, i.e. payroll reports in determining people's level of employment, Um, You can now consider different things like what's the level of, you know, subway or train ridership in and around a major metropolis, say, for example, New York City, uh, which is close to home where I live. Um, You could consider things like, you know, open table reservations. Will that be a better signal to the perceived level of consumer competence instead of what's traditionally been fielded through the Bureau of Economic Analysis? Um, When we start thinking about health and recovery, would people's use of telehealth subscriptions and the findings that would come of subscribing to that platform be, for example, a better source of information than say the world health organization again. Hmm. So what this pandemic has proven is that there are so many different sources of information to leverage, to make better business decisions.
0: Hmm. And Michael, anything you would add there from an analytics perspective?
2: I think what Anthony
1: was saying is is very interesting from an overall macroeconomic perspective. I think I think the the one point there, what he said too, was how do we drive it into the middle market? Yeah. Because step one is 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 getting a handle of your own company's data um, at the at the portfolio company level perspective, and then at the overall um, private equity level perspective for all the portfolio companies. How do you get a handle on that first and foremost, using new, new newish software systems um, that are out there to to conduct a deeper dive into data analytics? And then how do you layer various social data on top of that to help you make better decisions for your individual business, whether it's a private equity-owned portfolio company or just a family-owned business that might want to transact in the future? I think the availability of of data in the middle market, in addition to layering in various social data at a more macro level, become is just going to become increasingly more important. And you know, seeking help to understand your own data is going to be uh, paramount.
0: For deals that are starting to kick off now and and through the rest of the year, Michael, what types of considerations should buyers and sellers be factoring in when analyzing a business's financial performance?
1: Yeah, that's something that we're going through right now. We have this laundry list of of potential outcomes for middle market businesses just because, you know, we're gonna to start to have a in, in our in our opinion, a, a significant amount of MA activity is going to happen. I don't know if it's gonna happen this summer, this fall, or months from now, but it, it's going to be hot and heavy. And there's going to be an analysis done. So, a typical with a typical MA transaction, you're usually looking at last three years of historical information. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're going back further, five years, 10 years, and you're always wanting to bridge that into what do you think about the forecast? Um, however, in, in this period of time, we're going to have a significant anomaly that is 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, it may be a couple months worth. Some businesses, it might be longer than a couple months worth. But there's going to be a significant amount of of, of analysis, and it's and you're not going to only take um, reported results at face value because sellers are going to want some type of pro forma analysis to be to be to be contemplated. Buyers might have an opposing view on it, and there are certain things that we're starting to take a list, a, a look into, like certain um, products and services. Do you have significant pricing increases? or or concessions for that matter. You probably wanna strip out any type of anomalies that occurred during this timeframe to look at a more steady state business analysis when you're doing a valuation when you're buying or selling a business. Uh, There could be one time or non-recurring expenses due to to, to support remote work, uh, to transition employees into a remote operation, uh, software needed, uh, any other one-time supplies or costs required. We have, uh, in certain instances, there's going to be one-time or temporary increases in labor or overtime rates, bonuses, incentives to keep people actually working for, for businesses allowed to stay open. Um, many times, obviously, we're going to see reduced compensation or reduction in force uh, occurring at these businesses, but, but a normal steady state business or a normalized level of EBITDA wouldn't, wouldn't have that. So there's going to be all types of uh, analysis that's going to need to go into that uh, from a financial business performance perspective in order to fully understand what is the normalized run rate EBITDA of a business, whether you're looking to sell a business in the next year, one to two to three years, uh, or you're looking to acquire a business. Uh, this is going to last for a, lo- a while in- into, you know, the next, like I said, one to one to three years, just because you're t- typically looking at multiple years of historical information. So it's not just a now problem. It's going to start now, but that's going to go into the rest of the year, this year, and even into next year and the year after of how do we analyze 2020 and get it on a more normalized run rate basis? Because that's typically what evaluation is going to be based off of, as opposed to, you know, if some business is doing extraordinarily well because of this. You might not want to pay off of an increase in EBITDA because of, you know, increased demand in food or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And similarly, on the downside, you're not going to take one point in time and look at, you know, a business that's down 75% because of the pandemic. You're going to want to look at that at a more normalized level as well. But understand what were the level what were the levers that could be pulled. What could we have done better? How do we prepare for this into the future? but nonetheless always want to look at the earnings of 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 the business on a on a normalized run rate basis and there's going to be a tremendous level of, of 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 that in the in the months and years to come due to the coronavirus pandemic
0: so potentially complicating a lot of what we've been talking about today are several proposals that have been floated by lawmakers that would put restrictions on m&a activity during the pandemic in your view anthony how likely is it that one of those moves forward and Is the possibility influencing deal making decisions in any meaningful way?
2: Yeah, so the short answer to your question is not very likely, and that's my own opinion. Um, But nonetheless, it is something that we continue to follow at RSM. So, what's happened as of late is certain Democratic lawmakers are seeking to restrict uh, the private equity firm's ability to invest in distressed companies. So, we'd all agree that with what's going on in the world with coronavirus, clearly uh, businesses are suffering. Values are down on companies, which in a way can create an extended period of buying opportunity for private equity groups uh, through the next three to five years. Mm -hmm. And so what the Democratic lawmakers are getting ahead of is they're describing um, these possible business activities as being harmful mergers and acquisition. Their bill claims to protect the public from what they said were harmful effects of consolidation in industry. Uh, Specifically, when you look at some of the regs, the plan calls for suspension of MA in, involving large companies um, until it's determined that these small businesses, their workers, and the consumers at large are no longer under severe financial distress. And that's exactly that's written within its bill. Um, in my opinion, that's a very difficult categorization to make because what one would argue as a, as a company that's undergoing financial distress may be different than some how some may other argue. Um, and the bill cites companies as having $100 million in revenue or financial firms with market caps of $100 million or more as the, as the ones that the bill would apply to. Does influence private equity firms and even hedge funds. So at RSM, one of the things we did was to, start to, is to determine through our own research whether or not that argument has any validity. And so what we looked to was, what we believe to be the most recent sharp economic decline, which of course was the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009. And what our findings of the data were, were in fact that there actually were some uh, arguments they made of the fact that the private equity groups themselves would benefit from achieving higher returns long-term. So what we pulled data on was funds that originated in the year 2009-2010. What was their internal rate of return five and seven years after origination, net of expenses? And the data was overwhelmingly in agreement with the position that the Democrats have made. Um, And we saw some level of disparity between ranges of middle market. So for example, on the lower end of middle market, groups that are south of 500 million of assets under management, those groups in general performed at a rate of 13% or higher whereas the groups that are a little bit larger in middle market, 500 million of AUM or better, um, had performance of over 16%. So again, it does validate the position that there may be a long-term benefit in this for private equity firms. But as you argue that, um, I think if a lot of private equity groups were listening to this, they would argue that you know they're no different than many other businesses today and that they're managing their businesses, struggling from some of the short-term financial pain. So those opponents would argue that you know, private equity essentially provides the level of capital and expertise and active ownership that these struggling companies could not access on their own. And I do agree with that. Um, And some would say that the strong private equity returns that you've seen over the last 10 years in the bull economy not only benefit those deal-making Wall Street executives, but also the Main Street investors through the public pension plans and endowments. So the reason we follow this is, is is because of the fact that it does reveal this ongoing tension between private equity firms and lawmakers on what is the true role of private equity in the u.s economy you know do they revive struggling companies and share in the upside of profits or instead do they take advantage of the most vulnerable um, and promote executive greed so as we said it's something that will continue to follow but we don't think has immediate impacts on our clients
0: okay well we'll leave it there Anthony and Michael, partners with RSM. Thanks for joining me on TV. Thanks
1: for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.